Wonderful. We're going to read some scripture together. Um, you might notice that each time I preach, I get us to stand when we're doing uh, our, our, our Bible reading. And, and I say the same thing every week. We stand to honor people. We stand to sing our national anthem. We stand to toast somebody. It feels good and right to stand and honor the word of God that, we're about to, uh, that I'm about to read to you. And, um, and then we will take a seat. So we're going we're gonna to read from 2 Timothy chapter 3. And, um, and we're going to read through a couple of verses. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Because you know those from whom you have learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus the Messiah. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please uh, take your seats. I am... uh, I'm looking forward to preaching this morning, and this is my first time preaching in about a month, so there's a lot going on in here, Um, so um, we're going to go quite quickly. It is my job this morning to uh, bring an end to the series that we've been working through over the last few weeks, and uh, normally we take a piece of scripture. Oh, it's working, Sam. Sam told me before the beginning of the service this wasn't going to work, and lo, the Lord has provided. You take these little miracles, right? It's wonderful. Um, and so I, normally we take a piece of scripture, we just expand it, and we pull it apart and exposit it. Uh, I'm not going to do that this morning because what I want to do is kind of do a flyby of where we have come. But then I'm going to ask the question, uh, and those of you from the South community will hear me say this often, so what? That's great information. So what? So we're going to answer that question this morning, uh, hopefully in a way the Lord will really speak to you. But first... I want to start with this little fella. How many of you recognize this from the news recently? Show of hands. Really? That was really high-pitched. Shows you haven't been preaching for a while. I suddenly reverted being back 14. Um, okay, so this, this little guy uh, is called a, uh, uh, let me just get this right, a, sac- a saccharitis. And it was a uh, recently found, this is what scientists say, it's only about a millimeter in size. It looks like a tiny wrinkly ball. This is a scientist speaking, not Pastor Glenn. A tiny wrinkly ball with a bunch of spines and a mouth with rings of teeth around it. That sounds not very scientific, is it? It gets better. Uh, and quote, I like to describe it as an angry minion. That's what the scientist said. What's crazy is up until recently, and you can look at this, uh, you can go on the BBC or the Guardian or or something like that, and they will tell you all about this little guy, Um, until very recently, it was a commonly held view that this is where we came from. You're related to that, is what the story was. Thankfully, we found out in the last couple of weeks, or at least I did, none of you did, because there was nobody who admittedly put their hands up. that that is not true. What a relief. We're not actually evolved from a, quote, angry minion. Tiny little angry minion. Um, so, so that's good news, isn't it? What a strange world we live in. Isn't it? This is a great example of this narrative, this story, if you like, that we are continually told by our culture. And you don't have to be a Christian to have this story told to you. This is the story. 
that will tell you where you have come from, what your history is, or not, thankfully. It'll tell you what your history is, or this story from our culture, our society, our world will tell you what's right, what's wrong, uh, what is meaning, what is purpose. Um, it will tell you what it means to be human or not. It will tell you how to be, what to do, what to wear, what to listen to, what to watch, what not to wear, what not to listen to, what not to follow. It's fascinating to me as a pastor because one of the things that people often say about Christianity is Christianity is full of rules. In fact, our culture is so full of rules, and, uh, and, and you better watch out if you don't follow the rules. Not only just rules, but the way you think, the way you should respond. There is a commonly held view that we should be all accepting and, and we, should be, uh, we should be advocating and, and, and what's your truth is your truth. Unless your truth contradicts my truth, in which then it's not right, which I get very confused about. That we're meant to be all inclusive, unless you don't agree with my stance on being all inclusive, then you are not welcome. It's very confusing. But this is the story that our culture will tell you. And here's the interesting thing is, you don't even have to go out of your way to have this story told to you. This story comes to you as soon as you wake up in the morning. Some of you will open up your eyes and you will grope to the side of your bed. You'll grab your phone and that is the first light you see in the morning. You check your social media, your Instagram, your Facebook, your Snapchat, your Be Real, whatever it might be that you are looking at at the moment. You'll check it and the story begins. The story of what you are meant to be. Doesn't matter about age, doesn't matter about your socioeconomic standard, it doesn't mean, it, doesn't, it makes no difference. Your culture, your city, your environment, your friends, the media, social media especially, is telling you a narrative, a story, and it is not just inviting you in, it is drawing you in. It's telling you how to be human. Worryingly, it's also telling you how to constantly seek pleasure and self-gratification, how to be anti-authority and anti-establishment, how to prioritize whatever feels good to you. It's teaching you how to put you first. It's teaching you low moral tolerance. It's teaching you how to be sexually free and addicted to it. It's teaching you all these things just by waking up in the morning. Some people go out of their way to have this absorbed into their life, but every person in this room, as soon as you leave this place, by walking down this road, driving, going wherever it might be, you're absorbing a narrative, and it's a narrative that says this is how you should live. This is what you should enjoy. This is what your life should be filled with. And for millennia, maybe longer, humans... Humanity has tried to carve our way through this cultural narrative because this cultural narrative is not a new thing. It doesn't matter when you were born, where you were born. It's a culture that is continually drawing you in. It's just been called human. But there's something about the story that kind of makes us jolt inside. We just know that this isn't the story we actually should be in. It's a little bit like having Han Solo in Lord of the Rings. It doesn't connect. It doesn't connect. I have a bad feeling about this. It was never said in Lord of the Rings. For those of you who are Star Wars people, you're really leaning in now. Star Wars connection, this is going to be good. But it's a bit like we're out of character in the wrong story. The reason I know that is because we're continually looking for ways to feel satisfied in the story. We have this 
innate understanding that we just don't belong. There's always something more. We're never satisfied. We're trying to, we're trying to look for an escape or an improvement. There's this disconnect. There's this, yeah, this doesn't feel like the story I should be in. I feel like there's a different story. And so what we've been doing over the last few weeks is we've been looking at a great story. The story of the Bible, the story of Christianity, the story of Jesus Christ. You see, we were meant for more. So that feeling of not being satisfied, that feeling like there's something missing, or that feeling like you're Han Solo in Lord of the Rings, is actually a clue to the existence of God, but also that you were designed for so much more. C.S. Lewis, who is often quoted by any modern preacher, just his sermon isn't a sermon unless you quote C.S. Lewis, Remember, he wrote these things in a, in a time that was, uh, was very different from ours, and so, but I think that his, it's still true. This is what he said. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. It's like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You were created for so much more. Which if we go back to my minion friend, really? That's the narrative. That's the story. If not him or it or whatever it is, something else, you're just an accident. You're an afterthought. Whereas we know. I don't have to stand here and convince you that you were created for more. You know that. You don't have to be a Christian to know that. You know that. That's the beautiful thing about having the fingerprint of the divine on your life. I don't have to convince it. All you have to do is shut everything off long enough, unplug for long enough, and sit quietly, and something will rise in you that goes, there's something more to this. Something more to this. So the big question is this. Does the story for your life, the one that you are following, the one that you are absorbing, the one that you are chasing after, regardless of your age, does it actually provide you what you really desire, really desire? That's the big question because here's a little bit of a scary add-on to that is that your, your story, not only are you following a story, you've got people following you. They might be little guys. They might be people in your employment. They might be team members. They might be your neighbors. They might be people that you're just sat by when you're waiting for a bus or in a coffee shop, wherever it might be. Your circles, people are following you, following something. What's the story that you're following? What's the voice that you're really listening to? You see, Jesus said that those who know me know my voice. And he invites us to come and follow after him. It's a completely countercultural story. Because what Jesus says all the way through the New Testament, and God says all the way through the Bible, is not that, this. If you really want to have that inside of you activated and empowered, that which you were really created for, then this is the way to find it. This is the way to live it out. He said, my words are spirit and they are life, life more abundantly, life more full. So then it doesn't matter what the story or the narrative is from our culture. We have a better, more divine story to live into and through. A story that I feel proud to be able to look at my 17-year-old son or, or whatever age my children might be and look them in the eye and go, this is the greatest story that you can literally give your life to. 
This is so much more than just getting to heaven. It's really interesting. You read the Gospels. Jesus' main focus is not dying so that you and I can get to heaven. Jesus' main focus is that we would follow him so we could bring some of the kingdom of God into earth now. It's really interesting what he calls the disciples to. He says, go and preach the gospel. He hadn't even died yet. Hey, that can't be right. How is the gospel going to be preached by a bunch of disciples before Jesus died? But if I ask the average Christian what the gospel is, they're going to point to the cross and say, it's Jesus dying on the cross for sins to be forgiven. And I would go, yes, and? Because Jesus is saying, look, the gospel is new life kingdom. And I can look at my 17-year-old or my other children and go, this you can give your life to because this is what you were created for. And everything that you do in life can point towards this and you will be forever fulfilled. Forever fulfilled. So the question is, whose voice are you following? Whose narrative are you listening to? Whose story are you leaning into? Whose story are you following and then having other people follow you into it? Whose voice are you following? Because I can assure you this, friends. You are following a voice. Every one of us, it emerges out of our lives. When I was 16, um, I had a lot of different jobs. And one of the jobs that I had that I really enjoyed was basically following a very skilled um, kind of all-round uh, construction worker. He could do anything. He could, he could do mudding and plastering, as we call it in Britain, and carpentry. Uh, we call carpenters chippies, electricians sparkies. Gas fitters, gas fitters, I got nothing, sorry. But he could just seem to do everything. And so, we'd, and so one of the jobs that we had to do at this Christian conference center that I worked at called Living Waters, which is, we have a connection with now in Tanzania, was to, uh, to re-mud, re-plaster a wall. And so it was, this is, you don't do it on top of uh, plasterboard. You're actually doing it on top of masonry rocks. And so you have to skim it first with, a, uh, with, a, with some plaster, and then you build up the plaster, you build up the mud, and it takes a few days, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, and some of you are like, can we talk about Han Solo in Lord of the Rings again? Because I've lost you. My job, I was very excited, was that I could do the initial, uh, that nobody would see, kind of covering with the plaster. And he left me to it. I felt like, oh, I made it. I'm going to be a plasterer for the rest of my life. This is the best thing ever. And I felt like I did a good job, knowing now that it really didn't matter what kind of job I did because he was going to be the one that leveled it all off. But I was doing this so well, and I stood back, and the wall was maybe about 16 foot by 10 foot. It took me a few days. I was so proud of it. So proud that I decided to carve in my name, Glenn, with the side of my trowel, really big, and then plaster it. And then I was like, oh, no, I'm going to get into trouble. I better plaster over and just skimmed over it. The next day he came in and he did the next one. A few days later he came through and he built it out and then he did this beautiful, it was smooth, it was nice, it was great. And then as you know, this mud, this plaster takes a few days to, to harden off. And as it hardened off, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? Glenn emerged. <laughs> you could see my name in the mud. I got such a telling off. And I'm quiet. I'm like, that's the best thing ever. <laughs> Thinking that was it. Like, is it going to come through the paint? He said, no, we're going to have to do lots of coats of paint. But don't, and he just gave me such a telling off. My name emerged. <laughs> it was great. 
And it was a lesson. Because the voice that you are following, the story that is your narrative, the one that you are being influenced by, the one that you are influencing other people with, that will emerge out of your life. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how much you cover it up. It will emerge. So this is important. You have to consciously choose to be formed and changed differently. Because otherwise, just drifting will always take you back to a story where you don't belong. The beautiful thing of the Bible, as we've been looking at it over the last few weeks, is it's so different than the average person on the street thinks it is. This Bible tells us who God is. It tells us who you are. It tells us what the true story is. And then it tells us about Jesus, the one that can truly transform and change. It tells us all these things in beautiful technicolor. And as you read it through this story of who you are, who God is, who Jesus is, and what Jesus came to do so that you could live a life transformed, comes through the pages right from the very beginning. So that we could experience, just like C.S. Lewis said, infinite joy instead of the mud pies. One of my favorite theologians, thinkers, philosophers, N.T. Wright, he suggests that we look at the Bible through a certain lens that I'm going to use this morning. He talks about it being like the great divine play. He actually gives it five acts. He says that we're living in the fifth act, partway through the fifth act. I don't want to tell, I, I, I don't say this, but I want to suggest there's a sixth act. Sorry, NT, I feel so grossly underqualified to suggest that, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you what I mean in a minute. So just imagine, if you will, as we look at this Bible, as we do a flyby, just like the, uh, when you go to California soaring, you're just flying by, just imagine in a series of acts, and we're in Act 5. And as we do that, I want you to see a common theme all the way through. And then we're going to pull it together. I'm going to show you what this means to us in an everyday life. Because truly what it means is it gives us a narrative that we can actually live out and see lives transformed as our lives are being transformed. So imagine, if you will, the lights go down. We're watching a play. The lights slowly come up. Act 1. Creation. Act 1. Creation. Light explodes out of nothing. A big bang, if you will. Nothing unbiblical about that. The universe expands, and it still is, because the light and the word of God continues. He never said, light, stop. God says, good, when he created creation. Then he said, very good, when he created you and I. He did not say, perfect, because it was incomplete. Because when you look at the word perfect in the Old Testament, in the Bible, it literally means complete. Because there was still much to be done. There was still much to be done through you and I. He took some dirt, he breathed divine into it, and he created us in his image. Now he said, now go work. He gave us a vocation. He gave us something to do. He told us to go into the world and to rule and to represent him well. To point people to what we had in the garden, the kingdom of God, and to take that out into the whole world. The dirt and the divine combined, we are now image bearers, capable of things far beyond ourselves. To represent him, to rule and care and spread the good. Which, by the way, is the first clue as to why you are never satisfied with anything outside of God. Because you are dirt and you are divine combined. Don't just serve the dirt. Don't just serve the dirt. Think about the divine act two, the fall. 
A choice is made. God's true story is self-righteously torn up and rejected by Adam and Eve. And what follows is this self-destructive, self-serving story of our own, believing that the mud pies that we can muddle together from the dirt that we are somehow is going to satisfy and satiate and follow God's rule, believing that we are king and queens of our own lives. And then immediately, sin enters the world and a promise is made. So there's a choice made, there's a promise made that he, Jesus, Jesus will crush the head of Satan. That there is an answer coming right from Genesis 3. It's pointing right to the end and saying, there's someone coming. His name is Jesus, and he's going to crush all that has happened. He will make things right. He is the apex of the whole story. You want to know what the Bible is about? The Bible is about Jesus. He will make things right. He will destroy evil. He will free us from sin. But sin still explodes into humanity, and there is evidence everywhere from that moment all the way through to our day now. Sin explodes. And immediately we see in the Old Testament that God is only interested in one thing. He is focused on his story. He's, promised on, he's focused on the promise that he's already made. And he lovingly pursues mankind, humanity. And overall, we resist. The days of Noah arrive and they survive the flood. Another promise is made, never again. We move in from prehistoric time to historic time. The deathly consequences of sin are still echoing through creation and all through humanity. It reverberates everywhere. It's now 2000 BC. Abraham is the man and there comes another promise, Act 3. A reminder to Abraham that our vocation is to bless and that he will bless all of humanity through those who are in Abraham's family. A change for God in some sense because now he's saying that this transformation is going to be coming through mankind. Because if you follow all of Abraham through, because Abraham starts as a, as, a, uh, as, a, as a family, it goes to a tribe, it turns to a collection of people, and ultimately a nation called Israel, then you can track through where Jesus Christ comes through the promise that Abraham made. But still, that God is focused on his story and the promise and lovingly pursues humanity and overall humanity Resists. The promise passes from Abraham to Isaac. Act 3 continues. Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to Joseph, and his technicolor dream coat. It's now 14 AD, 1400 AD, 2 million strong now, and another promise is made to Moses. Israel is now, the nation of Israel is captive by Egypt. Moses leads them out. Joshua leads them into the promise. They demand a king. His name is Saul and eventually David. Little did Israel know at that point, they're at their pinnacle of their history. For the next thousand years, they are going to revert back to the days of uh, David, the words of David. They're going to see that the glory days of David are their pinnacle. Solomon, the son of David, is now king. He writes Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. But the nation is already starting to fracture, and problems are appearing to crack. Because as God pursues, there's a resistance from mankind that sin is still reverberating through. I can still do this, says mankind. I have the answer. I know a better story. Your story, God, is not my story. I know a better way. But the cracks are starting to appear. Civil war breaks out in the time of Solomon. And they go through 40 different rulers. The prophets come and they declare the true story, the right story of God. And yet still there is resistance. God is focused on his story. God is focused on his promise. God is focused on his pursuit. And his name is Jesus. And we still to this day, resist. 
It is now 721 BC. An army from the north, the Assyrians, come and invade Israel. And we never hear from the Assyrians again. 500 BC, the Babylonians rise and invade from the east. And they take away the remnant for the next 70 years. And then we enter into this really strange time of Israel's history. The so-called 400 years of silence. That gap between Malachi and Matthew. Babylon rises and it falls. Persia rises and falls. Greek culture rises and falls. And the Romans then come, center scene into this great play. They rise and they rise and they rise. And little did they know that this was all part of God's plan, his promise, and his pursuit. They were making way for the crusher. They were making way for the deliverer. The ultimate expression of God's love, God's promise, God's pursuit God's story, act three, curtains come down, act four, Jesus, the God hero, has arrived from the Lion of Abraham, the climax to the whole story, blessing, healing, miracles, hope, eternity, salvation for all humanity, are in the creases of his cloak and the calluses of his hands and the words of his mouth, and he comes and walks this planet in a way that no human has ever walked it, fully God, fully man, with promise in his words that there is a promise, come follow me and you too will live out the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, this kingdom of God that is a now and not yet promise, now the kingdom of God is here and yet it is also to come, but as Christians, as disciples, as people who follow Jesus, as he says, come follow me, we can experience that true story in our lives today, a story that isn't Dictated by our circumstances or our health or our finances or our children or our jobs or our ambitions or our achievements. It's completely outside of that. You could say supernaturally outside of that. A new heaven and a new earth. Act six, I would suggest. A new heaven and a new earth. Friends, do not think that you are going to spend eternity in heaven. The Bible does not teach that. Your eternity is going to spend on a new earth and a new heaven with King Jesus on the throne. That's our eternity. And so when we pray that heaven come now, that kingdom come now on earth as it is in heaven, we are going to see a fruition to that prophecy. An invitation for the dirt and the divine to become all that we were created to be now and in the future. Now and not yet to be transformed, to live out this one true story. To play a part in the play that God created for us to be part of when he said, let there be light from dirt and divine. Jesus is taken and smashed and killed on a Persian invention called the cross. So hideous. So despicable that a Roman citizen wouldn't even say the word. He becomes our representative, taking our consequences, becomes the curse for which God actually placed upon through sin that's mentioned in Genesis, and it dies with him and destroys evil's hold upon us. Sin has no hold on those who believe in King Jesus. That the past sin, the present sin, the future sin, Is all covered, all forgiven through what Jesus did on the cross. The ultimate representation of God's divine love, promise, pursuit, and plan. New life and power flood in and fill all those who believe. A new hope. Forgiveness of sin. Evil destroyed. Consequences removed. Eternity, act six. 
assured. Remember, as Jesus returns to heaven, we have the unfolding of Act 5. And this is what N.T. Wright would say that we are now living in, and he's right. And it starts with 120 confused, frightened individuals meeting in an upper room based on a promise that Jesus said, stay here, there's somebody coming who's to your advantage, who's going to fill you and empower you to be my witnesses, to live out the kingdom that I have been preaching about for the last 33 years, stay here. And as that happens, as we read about at the beginning of Acts, the baby fledgling church is born and explodes in growth. The dirt and the divine are now empowered to live differently, to follow a different story, a story of healing, a story of hope, a story of joy, a story of peace, a story of companionship, a story of shalom, this integrated perfection. The way we were created to be is now part of our lives, Christian friends. And Jesus says, go. Go into all the world and take this promise with you. Don't go into the world judging them. Don't go into the world with a self-righteous, kind of holier-than-thou viewpoint. Don't seclude yourselves away from them through fear of what they might do to you. But go and walk this out in the narrative that they have and show them that there's a different story. As representatives of God in this world, just as God promised in the beginning, the dirt and the divine, a new vocation. Christian friend, do not look at your school life, your degree, your classes, your work, your employment, your business, your retirement, your possessions, the stuff that surrounds you, your children, anything. Do not look at that and think that they terminate on themselves. They do not. They have all been graciously given to you through common grace so that we might then point people to the greater story. They are not the story regardless of what the narrative of the world might be. They are there to point to the greater story His name is Jesus. We're literally ministers, agents of reconciliation, reconciling humanity back to the way we were created to be and better because we now have the Holy Spirit. Act one is creation. Act two is the fall. Act three is Israel. Act four is Jesus. Act five is the church. Act six is is the new creation, that which is to come. That's our hope, where all wrongs are made right, all injustice is made right, all tears will dry up, all sickness will cease. Where there was sorrow and mourning, it will be replaced by joy and dancing. I said that in a Mennonite church. It will get replaced, it will get reconciled, and it will be better than anything we can even fathom and imagine because King Jesus is the designer. And so we find ourselves in Act 5, as N.T. Wright would say. In the play that is the story of the Bible, we have the opening scenes, Act 1, 2, 3, 4, and part of 5. If you like, we're now in scene 2 of Act 5. We've not been given specific instructions in how to practically live out this life in 21st century Kelowna. All we can go on is what we have seen before, what we read about. It's like we have the beginning, we have the middle, and we have the end, and we kind of got to figure out. N.C. Wright uses this brilliant analogy that was so brilliant, I actually thought, I can't explain this well. A long lost Shakespearean play, and 
that somehow we just know because of Shakespeare's writing that we're able to figure out how this long lost play may be acted out. We have the play. We know how it's acted out. And can I tell you, it looks very different from what we might think church looks like. We've been called to participate. And what we know is to be true about God and ourselves and the story. We're to participate in peace and acceptance. We're to participate in the story of generosity. Christian friends, we should be the the most generous people in this city. Generosity should be a mark of who we are. It's not a grab and run mentality. It's a receive and give mentality in every possible way. And that also includes financing. We can't get away with, oh, it's just, it's just time, treasure, and talents. Oh, I'm just going to focus on time and, treasure, uh, time and talents. That's what I give. No, no. We're giving really clear instructions as to how we should use our money. Perhaps more than anything else in the New Testament. That this story invites us to participate in the story of praying for others. Not some distance way, but as we leave this place, how, when was the last time that, that we actually stopped in our day and prayed for somebody? Actually asked them to, can I pray for you? Because you're in a win-win. If they say no, going to do it anyway. I'm just not going to know. <laughs> Buckle up for the blessing. If they say yes, wonderful. We've been called to participate in the story of love. We've been called to participate in the story of holiness, to be pure, to be different, set apart. There should be a mark on our life that is different. Not just because we are judging or self-righteous or pious, but we're different because we're willing to stand on the story that is different, that is countercultural. That we participate in the story of service and kindness and patience. We participate in the story of humility and quietness and deference. And there's this wonderful test. There's a tension between the two stories. The story of our culture and the story of the Bible. The story of Jesus and the story of our culture. There's a tension between the two. And it makes it hard. And it's going to get harder. The persecution may look different than what we read in church history. But Christian friend, please be assured the persecution is going to get worse. We're promised that. And so the tension between the two stories are there. But can I implore you, don't change the story of God to make it easier for you to live out. Because that's easy to do. Well, I'm going to take that, that doctrine, that theology, that belief that the Bible really clearly says, and I'm just going to change it slightly to make it a bit easier for me when it goes into the story of our culture. So I'm going to change my view about sexuality. I'm going to change my view about what the Bible really says. I'm going to change my view about the gospel. I'm going to change my view about all sorts of cultural narrative just to make it easier to live out that cultural narrative. That's not the story. To join this story, to successfully live it out, we need to be a very specific kind of person. And that's what this series has been about. It's that how do we live out this story in such a way that we're actually representatives of the grand story, the great story of the great playwright. So we don't take his script and rip it up and go, I think we've got a better one, God. I think we've figured it out because we're so smart. It's if we follow this particular political bent, 
if we could just change this educational policy, if we could change this socio-economic uh, policy, if we can just tweak and change, I think that shalom is going to fill this world. And we just know. We need something more. We need to be a very specific kind of person. If it's difficult for you living in this narrative called the world, then you're probably doing it right. If it's actually easy and you're just floating through and people don't even know, you're probably missing it. We need to be a certain type of person, appropriate to the design we've been given. We need to prime our life well. Because as I said right at the beginning, as I pull this to a close, all you have to do is wake up in the morning in order to receive the narrative of the world that is so different from the narrative of the Bible. The opposite is true. Apart from the Bible's narrative, the story of God, the good news, the kingdom of God, we never drift into that. We actually have to make choices to go into that. We have to prime our lives, if you like, in very practical ways. We need to be changed and transformed in a way that is actually in keeping with our design. Rather than putting things into our life that just don't belong, we actually place, our, we, we listen to the voice that we were created to listen to. Because friend, that is where you will find true peace. When I was about three years old, I've shared this story before, certainly to the South community. I made a series of decisions as a young toddler. I was about three or four years old. And uh, I remember for reasons that you'll see in a second and understand in a second. Uh, I remember being in the backyard of our house, just a small little bungalow, and um, I remember it being a warm day, and I remember my dad's motorbike being there. For those of you south, you'll remember this story. My dad's motorbike, his brand new motorbike, in all its glory, beautiful design, sat there. It was a Honda, and he was so proud of it. He'd just been washing it. He'd washed his helmet. He'd washed his gloves and, and, and all that. My, my father was uh, also then um, prime, uh, sorry, glossing the, the windows. So he'd done the bike, and now he was turning to glossing, painting windows. For those of you who aren't old enough, that, that is what you used to have to do to wooden frame windows, stop them distorting. So he was glossing. The thing with gloss is, is it's not water-soluble. You need to remember that. My dad went in to answer a call, and I was this three- or four-year-old little guy in the backyard looking for stuff to do. I see the white paint of the gloss, I see my dad's bike. Natural connection, I think you'll all agree. I take my dad's, uh, take the pot. Uh, first thing I do is because it was near the back door, my mom tells me I painted my dad's shoes. You're welcome. I then thought, I got bigger and more ambitions plans now. So I take this pot, I was guessing probably like this, I don't know, carrying this pot of paint over to my dad's bike and just covered it in paint. Gloss, not water-soluble. Then I also painted his helmet and his gloves. You're welcome. I thought, my dad is going to be so happy about this. Yeah, I remember that day. And it wasn't because of my artistry, nor my self selfless act of service. It was for the consequences that came after which I won't go into great detail about, but I remember the day. That's all I'm going to say. As I've said before, this was not the day when you used to sit on the bottom step and think about what you did. Um, that was far from the truth. Um, here's the thing. That bike was never designed to have primer, uh, be primed with gloss in that way. It had a far better future. There are consequences to it. 
doesn't matter how well you paint it, it is not meant to be there. And certainly not his shoes and his gloves and the helmet and everything else. And it's an amazing picture of our life, friend. Because it's like we're desperately trying to prime our life with something that does not belong. The design that you have been given is far superior than anything that you can find on this planet to satiate it. The design you've been given is meant to literally sit there, eventually, in glory, enjoying the design in its fullest, and actually enjoying it today. And we come along with our gloss thinking that we're going to improve it by the way that we live, or the things that we say, or the actions that we do, or, or whatever, or the possessions that we have, that actually this is what life's meant to be about. No. There's consequences to that. And that's what Jesus came to die for. He said, believe in me and I will take those consequences. So God pours out. Because he's angry at sin. He's angry at sin because it ultimately leads to death for his beloved children. And so God, Jesus, died on the cross, taking the consequences of all that sin and literally presents back to us this beautiful new design that you can't just water off. It actually needs an expert to deal with. He presents his back and he says, now go and be what you're meant to be. See, Jesus' command, and I want you to remember this as we finish, is to come follow me Because I will make you, I will change you, I will transform you. Look, he says again in this second script, sorry, in the first, oh no, I've got a slide missing. This whole narrative that Jesus gives is constant, that I will make you, I will change you, come be with me. Being with Jesus is his apprentices, that we prime our lives with those things that actually do belong. And I want to encourage you, Christian friend, on a day-to-day basis, ask yourself the question, are we doing what Jesus wants to do? This idea of apprenticeship comes from Dallas Willard, and I think it's one of the best ways to describe what discipleship truly is. It's to be with somebody, speak like somebody, act like somebody, until eventually it's actually quite hard to tell the difference. That's our future, Christian friends. To be changed, to enable me to live out this story that God presents to us in his word. To prime our minds, our hearts, our lives with his voice. To turn to the scriptures and immerse ourselves in the grand story, the grand narrative. To not see our historical moment as being the be-all and end-all. Christians, you are part of something so much grander. And if you feel a little bit on the outside of that, and you've never come to the place where you have kind of given your life to Jesus and said, okay, Jesus, you are king. I'm going to follow after you. Forgive me for all that nonsense, that sin, all that stuff in my life that is holding me back. Forgive me. I want to come follow you. Then you will be invited in and brought into the greatest story, the story, the true story. And then the adventure will begin today. Amen? Let's pray. Let's just close our eyes. Lord, where do we even begin in saying thank you for thinking of us before the foundation of the world? Thank you, God, for 
your supreme patience and mercy and kindness to, to us, to me. But Lord, I know there is nothing about me that deserves your pursuit, your promise, your love. And yet, God, you have been so kind to me. You have been so kind to us. And so, Lord, I pray for my church family. Lord, I pray that we would be so encouraged by what you have done and continue to do. That, Lord, that we are part of something so much bigger. And so, Lord, I pray that we would take that into a hurting and lonely world. That they would see the story of Jesus evident in our lives. We would bring hope and renewal and love and peace and kindness and generosity and holiness into a hurting and lonely world. Lord of Jesus, I pray that you would fill us, the Holy Spirit, you would come, and that, Lord, just in those same days at the beginning and that we read about in Acts, that, God, there would be a, continu- a, co- a complete change and renewal in your people. That, God, you would empower us to be witnesses. That, Lord, we would speak truth in love, not in judgment. That, Lord, that we would show the gospel in its entirety to a hurting and broken world. Lord, we long to see our city changed and revived. Lord, I pray you would start with us. Thank you, Jesus. And Lord, for those people in the room or listening online who have never made that step, that Lord, even now as you're drawing them to yourself, that Lord, that they would just submit and say yes and choose you, Jesus. And that the story of God would flood into their lives so they would enjoy transformation now and into eternity. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus.